Hello and welcome to another Emith Your Business podcast. I'm Karen Iwata, your host. We're excited today to welcome back our friend, author, and entrepreneur, John Warlow, who's just written a great handbook on how to sell your business. It's called Built to Sell, and it will give you and provide you with the key concepts and information and the eight steps to creating a sellable company. You can check out our previous podcast with John, where we discussed an overview of the book and a separate podcast where we really focused in and drilled down on step number one, which is create a standard service offering. Today, we're going to discuss step number two and three, how to create cash flow and how to hire a sales team. John is an entrepreneur, author, and speaker, and throughout his career as an entrepreneur, he has started and exited four companies. He recently transformed Warlow & Company from a boutique consultancy into a recurring revenue model and a subscription business, which he sold to the corporate executive board in 2008. John, welcome back. So happy to continue this discussion with you. Thanks. Thrilled to be here. Now, for context, would you mind just briefly going through the eight steps to building a business? Today we'll focus on steps two and three, but just so everybody has an idea of what the full picture is. For sure. The first step is really to build a scalable product by focusing in on things that are valuable, teachable, and repeatable to your customers. The second step is to create a positive cash flow cycle, and we'll drill into that today, so I'll table that for a moment. You've got to hire salespeople next to make sure that you're actually selling your product in the marketplace. Uh, the, the next step is really to stop accepting other projects. Really trick, tricky to do, but essential to actually you know, selling a business. Once you've got a long-term incentive place, a plan in place for your employees, your acquirer will see that the next level of management is, is there and locked in. Step six is to find a broker, the importance of having a, a somebody to represent you in the negotiation. Telling your management team is step seven, and, and really it's about positioning how it's going to help them and their careers. And finally, the eighth step is converting offers into a binding deal. But I think today we were going to really drill down on this notion of of creating a positive cash flow cycle, which is step two in the eight. And the reason this is so important is that acquirers look at businesses and they look at two numbers, most importantly. They look at how much they're going to have to, how much cash they're going to have to pay to buy the business, number one. And number two is how much cash they're going to have to inject into your business to fund its working capital requirements, to fund its day-to-day cash needs. And those two numbers have an inverse relationship, meaning the more they have to put in in the way of working capital, the less they will be willing to pay you cash up front for your company. Said another way, if you're getting lots of cash and you don't need much cash to operate, you'll get a much higher valuation when you go to sell your business than if your company is a cash suck and needing a lot of money to run. And so... You know, the importance, you know, finding here is that you've got to make your business throw off cash. And the way to do that is to get paid before you do the work. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, this is really the antithesis or the scariest thing they could ever imagine. A lot of businesses, as we talked about, Karen, um, you know, they, you know, provide the service, provide the product, and then they send their invoice. You know, 30, 60, 90 days later, they might get their customer to pay, or if they're a retail store, they get paid a little sooner. But they're not used to the idea of getting, getting, getting money up front for the product or service that they sell. But it's essential 
so that you're not paying your money out to buy the raw materials before you've got the customer's money in hand to pay for that. Michael Dell, we talked about this last time, has a, a, you know, a very famous case study where they used to buy all the products and widgets to make the computers and then actually sell the computer. Now they take the customer, they, buy, they, buy, they, uh, they take the customer's order, then they go to all the parts manufacturers and buy the widgets to make the computers. Totally different uh, cash flow model. So the important thing is to put your cash flow model in place so that you're getting paid up front. And again, the, the trick here, especially if you're in a service business, is to make your service look like a product. Productizing your service offering is, is the real secret sauce. And, and the way you do that is think about products that you buy on the shelf. They have sort of two or three common characteristics that usually you know, differentiate them from the typical service. So products have a name. When you think about you know, Tide, you're on the shelf at, at the grocery store, there's Tide, there's a brand name. Um, it's got packaging. You're all used to seeing the kind of packaging that a Tide bottle comes in, and it's become familiar. You can, you can feel it in your hand when you imagine that Tide bottle. It's even got instructions on the back of the Tide bottle. It's those three criteria, and, and it, instructions, naming, and packaging, that make services feel like products. And so if you're in the business of, of selling a service, I really encourage you to, to kind of name it, uh, and package it in, in, a, in a very consistent way as if it were a product because we're socialized to buy products and pay the cash up front. When we go to Costco and buy Tide, you know, we don't use the Tide and then wait for Tide to send us an invoice 60 days later. We put our money down, take the bottle off the shelf, take it through the cash, and then go use it. And so for folks, especially in service industries, uh, it's really important uh, if you're going to charge up front and to have the courage to charge up front to make sure your service really looks and feels like a product. Now, John, One of the things – go ahead, Karen. Oh, Sorry, I was going to ask for an example. So, so I'm thinking about, um, say, accountants. So accountants do, you know, a number of things, right? They do tax preparation. They, they might do uh, the books for small businesses and so forth. Can you give us a, an idea of what it might look like for an accountant um, who, who maybe even has a practice to um, make his service or his suite of services look like a product? What might that look like? So an accountant could offer an annual hassle-free financial package for entrepreneurs. For a 12-month engagement, that accountant will offer a six-step process. So step one could be, you know, the annual engagement review where they talk about the, you know, st the strategy of the business, the key challenges of the business. Step two could be the quarterly profit and loss statement they generate. Step three could be, you know, the, the receivables reconciliation. They could, you know, productize their offering to a point where, as a business owner, you could buy that service from the accountant, and the business owner would say, you know, I, I don't really want to ha you know, hassle with my accountant. I don't want to be nickel and dimed. I want, you know, to kind of forget about the financing part of my business and go back to building whatever it is I like building. And I'm going to buy this package from this accountant because it feels tangible. It feels like he's done it more than once before. It's got six steps. I'm looking at the brochure where he's priced it all out. And that's one of the real... You know, really important things in my experience that business owners need to do to charge up front is you need to put it in writing. 
we're socialized, and I don't know what the, you know, the psychology behind it is, but we're socialized to hear the words of a price point and, and, and recoil at people saying something. So if I say over the phone, um, you know, that annual accounting package from that accountant is $28,000 a year, the words $28,000 a year is really difficult for people to hear. It's just a huge number, and they imagine in their, in their minds what else they could buy for $28,000 a year, and they go to things like cars and vacations and you know, cruises and stuff like that. Whereas if it's in writing, if you actually look at it in writing, your mind processes the information in a totally different way. So I would encourage, again, if you're thinking of charging up front, never verbally describe your pricing terms. Always put it in writing, because when it's in writing, again, it feels like you're looking at the back of the Tide bottle. This is official. This is real. It's $28,000 a month, billed quarterly. Uh, you know, net terms are 30, 30 days, etc. It feels tangible. Don't off-the-cup verbalize your pricing model, put it in writing, because, you're, again, it's just another one of those steps to making your product feel really tangible. Well, I, that's, I think, an outstanding suggestion, and even as you're saying that, I'm thinking about a number of um, businesses and, and transactions where uh, the selling of it, it feels difficult and feels challenging because, you know, the salesperson kind of chokes, you know, on the price when they're when you're talking about a sum, $28,000 or, you know, any kind of a large pain advance sum. So having it in writing, uh, we process that as a, as a customer, we process that information differently, but that is also then going to impact the way that you sell and the selling process of that service that you have now sort of packaged as a product. Would that be correct? Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up sales because sales is the first step in, in, in the process of turning your company into one you can sell. And, you know, as, as entrepreneurs, as business owners, a lot of us feel like we're the best salespeople for our company. And we take enormous pride in being, you know, good salespeople and, and, and ambassadors for our company. And again, those are wonderful traits. Uh, the problem is your business won't be sellable if you're personally still the primary rainmaker. So you've got to find a way to, to teach your process for selling to other people. And again, we're often, it's often very difficult to teach someone how to do something that you do naturally. Think about it. If you're a, you know, a snow skier or you're a great golfer, it's really tough to break down your stroke to a point where you could teach a, you know, a young child how to golf or how to snow ski. It, it kind of comes naturally to you. But you've got to find a way as the business owner to, to actually start documenting what it is that you do that makes you such a great salesperson. And as you do at the E-Myth, really you know, documenting that process to a point where a new salesperson could do the same thing. And, and part of it is making sure you've got a term sheet that the salesperson can use that prices out the product or service in writing so that they don't have you know, uh, a faint voice when they come to the price point, that it's there for them to kind of rely on as a crutch. One of the other things uh, that you need to do when you're building out a sales team to, to, to kind of take over the sales from you and your business is to start measuring your statistics. Because when a company acquires your business, oftentimes the company that's going to acquire your business has a view of expanding your model 
to other markets, other geographic markets or other industries. And I talked a little bit about the, uh, the, the photography uh, company that does school f- photographs. Let me give you an example using them because I think it will help to, to bridge the gap. The statistics that I think are most important to measure and that the photographic studio should be measuring are how many possible customers are in our footprint. And of those folks, call them qualified leads, and of those folks, how many are we getting face-to-face with? Um, and of the people we get face-to-face with, how many are we closing? So if you're the, this, the school photographic company in Albany, and we agree for, let's use a hypothetical example, let's say there are 100 high schools in Albany, and let's say we focus on high schools. If you can get in the door to see 25 of those high schools, you've got a qualified lead rate of 25%, 25 of 100 If you then close, let's say, five of those schools to use the photographic studio, you've got a close rate against qualified leads of five of 25, which is, I guess, that's 20%, right? Mm -hmm. Um, An acquirer is going to use those statistics, total market size, number of qualified leads, close rate, and they're going to project that onto whatever footprint they serve. So if there was a large national you know, photography company that wanted to get in the business of doing school photographs and become, you know, the Jiffy Lube of school photographs, become a nationally recognized company, they're going to say, okay, nationally, there aren't 100 schools. There are 68,000 public schools nationally, whatever the number are. And if we can then get in front of 25% of those and close an additional 5%, they can quickly run the numbers. And most companies have a good idea of what they're willing to acquire a company to get a certain amount of revenue. And so those statistics that you start to kind of measure and monitor over time will become important ingredients when you actually go to sell your business. Because again, they will become the proof points you need to go out and merchandise your business to an acquirer with a larger footprint, either number of offices or, or, or different industries. That's great. So quantification becomes a really huge piece of, I would guess, every step along the way. When we talked about step one in terms of creating your standard service offering, um, at the end of that conversation, you talked about testing it out in the market, collect some data to know whether you've really identified the correct service offering. That was number one. When we talked about creating positive cash flow a little bit earlier today, the only way to do that is to figure out what the price point is going to be so that you can charge up front, right, for this product or service and get that cash going in. And now, once again, we're talking about quantifying, you know, the percentage of um, uh, market that's out there. What is your market share? How many leads Do you have um, qualified leads and what the conversion rate is? So quantifying as you go along in each one of these steps is a huge piece of putting this um, plan to to build a business to sell together. You're absolutely right. And, you know, most business owners know these numbers in their head. And and they just know them, you know, a lot of people listening to this will be like, I know my close rate. I don't, you know, I need, I don't need to document that. I actually uh, heard about a business owner who uh, was in the manufacturing business, and he measured the success of their day, their selling day in that company, by how many trucks were waiting in line at the loading docks to pick up skids in the evening 
to take off to the people who had bought them that day. And he would literally, <laughs> at the end of the day, count the trucks. And that, uh, was, and that, was, just, that was just his way of monitoring the success of their business. <laughs> That's his quantification process. <laughs> yeah, which is fine if you want to be that business owner in that job for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But if, if you want to, at some point, have a business you could sell, pass it on to a family member or sell it to a third party, a strategic or financial buyer, you've got to find a way to turn the how many trucks are winning in the loading docks for my you know, skids to metrics, hard numbers that an acquirer can look at and say, great, uh, you've got that size of market. If we have a market that's 100 times the size of that, well, that's a really attractive business. Again, that's the, that's the way to get a higher multiple is if a, you know, businesses buy companies not for what they've done historically, but what the possibility is uh, for that business in their hands. And so they look at, okay, in your hands, you've been able to do whatever it is, a million dollars in sales. Great. But if we put your model into our footprint, boy, we, we flick a switch and it's now doing 65 million in sales. Well, that's a very attractive proposition for an acquiring company. So, you know, if you're counting the trucks in the loading bay, that's a great method for you to keep currency on on how your your business is doing. But if you want to sell your company or make a business that you could sell, you've got to document your statistics so that you can merchandise those to an acquirer. Okay, very, very good. So let let, let me go back for a moment to this idea of hiring a sales team because... I can imagine that there are um, business owners listening out there who are going, well, yes, you know, duh, I want to hire a sales team. I want to get out of this, but I can't find good salespeople. I don't know how to find them. We get them in, they go out. So do you have some tips on who the right salespeople are, how to, you know, how to find them, what you're looking for when you say go out and hire a sales team, and how big is this sales team supposed to be? Yeah, all great, all great questions. In my experience, uh, the best salespeople are ones that are good at selling products, not services. We talked a little bit about this last time. They, the, the, the people who are good at selling products don't force you to recreate your offering for every customer. They, they're good at you know, taking a, a tangible product, be it a car or you know, a, 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 a cell phone, and actually sell it to somebody without changing the product. So look for people that have uh, product sales experience. Um, The second thing I would say is you're looking for competitive drive. Whenever you um, look at statistics on the most successful salespeople, the ones that do the best have a deep-seated competitive drive. So you'll say, if you ask them in in an interview question, um, tell me about some of your accomplishments. They'll, the best salespeople will quickly be able to say, uh, you know, I was in bowling and I scored a whatever, 180. Um, in Little League, I, uh, you know, I pitched a, you know, a three-hitter. Um, I was the top salespeople out of 12 in my office. They will be quick to, ver- to point to very specific accomplishments where they were competing with someone or something else. It's that competitive drive that makes good salespeople um, really the best. And so, you know, when you're scanning their resume, look for the accomplishments and where they're, 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 they're ranking themselves against others. That's one of the real, uh, you know, things that, that, that pull apart and, and, and allow really successful people, successful salespeople to rise up. 
And the third thing I'd say, Karen, is, and again, I know that, that hiring can be, can be scary and can be expensive, and, and I, I'm totally mindful of that as I describe the, the next point, but that is that it's really important to hire more than one salesperson because one salesperson can really hold you hostage in your business. You never know as the owner just how hard that business, that, that salesperson is working relative to what other opportunity they're leaving on the table. How, how, are they just cherry picking? Are those deals that they're bringing in or those customers that they're bringing in really customers you would have gotten anyway? How hard are they kind of digging up and unturning up opportunities versus just kind of being reactive to, to other opportunities that are coming to them? The trick is to hire more than one salesperson. Because even if it's just two, and I'm not talking about a, a team of 20, I'm talking about just two salespeople, you'll know quickly whether or not those salespeople are being reactive or proactive. They will compete with one another. And the bar for what is acceptable in your company for sales suddenly goes up because you've got two people competing. And so you know, as tempting as it is to, to, to kind of dip your toe into the, into the, the waters of hiring a salespeople to hire one salesperson, you don't want that salesperson to hold you hostage down the road uh, because you're never sure of just how they're working. If you can hire one, try to find the money to hire two because it's a competitive tension that, 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 that causes um, you know, the, the right dynamic to happen in a sales team. That is great advice. Very, very um, important, I think, for, for these business owners who are still involved in uh, selling directly their products or services um, to be able to take up. And, and what, it, what it sort of brings to mind for me, John, and I, I wanted to ask you to comment on this as well, is that building a business to sell is not for the faint of heart. I mean, it takes courage to price your services, you know, packaging them and all of that, that's one thing, but pricing them so that, and, and positioning them so that your customers will pay for that product or service in advance, that takes courage. Removing yourself uh, from the sales force when you are a known quantity, right? We know what we can produce ourselves, what we're good at, what we're not. There's certain security in our being involved with it. So removing ourselves from the sales force and hiring people in to uh, do that function for us, that requires courage as well. So I'm beginning to get the impression, and I'd love you to, co- to have you comment on this, that it takes a tremendous amount of not just forethought and planning and desire, um, but courage to make this happen. You know what, I, I think you're right, and what gives... People, I think, entrepreneurs, the courage to continue down this path is to add a second statement to their annual reporting package they look at or their monthly reporting package they look at. And that statement is a valuation statement. So many of us as business owners are used to using as our report card um, our profit and loss statement. How much money did we make this month? And that's fine, and that's a good number to look at, and obviously valuation can often be related to the profitability of your company. But if the company is solely dependent on you personally to deliver that product, that profit, um, your business still not be, uh, is still not worth very much uh, to, a, to a third party. 
So I'd encourage people, and I think it gives you the fortitude and the courage to, to kind of continue down this path, is to add to that, complement your profit and loss statement with a simple valuation. It's not something you need to get done externally. You can just be honest with yourself and say, yeah, maybe we didn't make as much money this month as we did last month, but we did three things that make our business much more valuable to a third party. We hired a second salesperson. We actually got around to writing that brochure that salespeople can actually use instead of verbally describing the product or service. Um, you know, we, we dropped three products off of our menu be, in favor of ones that are really scalable because they're teachable, valuable, and repeatable. Um, you can really, in your own gut, know whether you're making decisions that are helping you be more sellable versus ones that just happen to make your profit and loss statement look rosy one month. Um, so I'd really encourage you to get in a quiet room with a coffee or whatever you need to do once a month or once a quarter and say, yeah, but I got this profitability statement from you, but, but let's talk about how valuable it is. And, and in those months where your profit may be may be rough and, and you may not be having a great quarter, it can also act as and give you just more fortitude to continue um, if, you, if you've made those really difficult decisions that make you maybe less profitable in the short term but more valuable in the long term. That is a great suggestion. Perfect. So, so just to sum up today's uh, conversation, we um, are continuing our, our um, countdown through the eight steps of building a business to sell. Um, step number two that we talked about today was create a positive cash flow cycle. And basically, the way you want to do that is to charge upfront for your products and services. And then we talked about hiring a sales team. So there were a few strategies that you gave us with regard to that. The first was to remove yourself from selling. The second was to hire salespeople who like to sell first and who like the product second. So selling is sort of their game. Liking the product is important, but liking to sell is probably the, the biggest thing. Avoid um, hiring people um, from professional services companies because they're going to want to or tend to want to customize your product or service or change it in some way in order to sell it. So you want to hire people who have experience in selling products. And then you want to find somebody who's got that competitive drive naturally. And if you can, and it sounds like you strongly suggest, you hire at least two salespeople so that there's that competitive tension between the two and so that you're not sort of held hostage by um, having all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, in that one salesperson. Does that, make, does that pretty much sum up what we talked about today? Excellent summary. Thanks, oh. yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm really excited about our next conversation because we're going to start uh, talk a, a bit about uh, step number four, which is stopping... Um, the other project syndrome. Stop accepting other projects that come along the way that look kind of enticing, that might distract you from your focus, and, and really what is your end game, which is to build a business that you can sell or transfer at some point down the line for some ROI. So I'm looking forward to that discussion uh, next time we speak, John. So th As am I. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us again today. I want to remind you that John's book is called Built to Sell. You can get it at John's website, builttosell.com. And once again, uh, John has been just gracious enough to provide uh, EMIT uh, listeners, the EMIT community, with a couple of special offers. The first 
is that you can download his ebook, The Model for Selling Your Business, which will introduce you to some of these ideas from Built to Sell. But even better, you can get the book if you uh, go to his website. Now, you'll find a link on this podcast post in our blog and in the resources section of emith.com, our website. And you can purchase Built to Sell, John's book, with an exclusive $5 off discount. So really excited to be able to um, extend that to you through John's generosity. Well, that brings us to the end of another Emith Your Business podcast. Thanks again to John Warlow for joining our discussion today and for continuing this ongoing series and how to build your business so that you can sell it based on his book, Built to Sell. You can find him online, once again, at builttosell.com. And as always, we encourage you to visit us at emyth.com as well. So thanks again, John, and we will speak to you and uh, encourage all of you to listen into our next podcast with John coming soon.